Live here in Washington, D.C., home of your favorite and best creators. You are now tuned in to people that you don't know that you should know. I'm your host, Ty Westbrook, featuring my co-host, Murray Ann. And let's get going with today's show. Yeah. And if you don't know, now you know. If you know, you know. Hey, 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 people. You already know what it is. It's your boy, Ty Westbrook, on the microphone. And I'm here with my lovely co-host, Mary Hello, Ty. How are you? How's your day going? It's going well. You know, it's, it's been pretty quiet, but it's been productive. Good. But overall, it's been great. Sometimes I'm, you need a little quiet time to get stuff done. Yes, it, help, it helps out with the body, mind, and soul. Isolation, quiet. It's needed. Yeah, I hear that. How about you? Uh, it's been good, and it's really good because right now I get to talk to a, a woman that I haven't seen in ages who actually was one of Molly's teachers. No way. Yes way. Isn't that like super cool? No, that's super cool. That is really cool. I, I wish Molly was here to actually, you know, I wonder how she would feel. Like, I don't know. She'd be really nervous, actually. <laughs> she has this little thing where she gets nervous every time she sees past teachers, even though she gets really excited because uh, Miss Maslin, who we will introduce you to in a second, is one of sort of like those rock star teachers, you know, that kids have and they go, oh, Miss Maslin, oh my God, that's so amazing. She's yeah. awesome. Everybody loves. But when you, when she sees one of her past teachers, she immediately like hides. I don't know. She has this weird thing about that. You would think Molly maybe play, played a prank. No, was she's not a prankster at all. Oh. Yeah, so, so not a prankster at Word. all. Yeah, can I chime in? Definitely, you can absolutely Definitely chime not in. a prankster. Just <laughs> no. like the most lovely and then serious and then just intellectually curious child ever. So a delight. Shout out to Molly. <laughs> Shout, out, <laughs> Shout to Molly. out for Molly, for sure. So welcome, Abby. Thank you for taking a little time to chat with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to. So I just wanted to start by asking... If you could tell us what you think love is. That's a loaded word, isn't yeah, it? It's isn't a loaded it? question with it a loaded is, word but, inside but of it. it. As a word, I think that it, it can mean so many things. And so I'm just interested in how how you conceptualize love. Yeah. I think my idea of what love is has changed so much over the course of my adult life. So I think I had this idea growing up that love was this really pure thing, um, unspoiled, uh, that happens both romantically and then with your family members and that in a way it's uncomplicated. I think I kind of grew up believing it should be simple and then, you know, entered into the world of adulthood and realized actually it's quite messy. It's very complicated and all of those layers to it are actually the interesting parts about it, right? Um, so we have these ideas of what it should look like um, and our society has kind of sold us a, a bill of goods about what it should look like and all of those are actually pretty limiting ways of thinking about it and when we let ourselves define it you know for each individual it opens up an entire world. So have you always been a creative person? Yes in the same sense that you are and I am and everyone is um, yeah, I think I have always defined myself pretty creatively, and I had a lot of projects that I felt very passionately about as a kid. I definitely stopped associating creativity with my with my adult identity at some point. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. As a teacher, I am so curious about like when that happens for kids that we we start losing them in the in their own kind of awareness of their of their creativity or their own interest investment in their creativity um so yeah like i've always loved to write i've always been into theater there were so many things i was interested in as a kid and then i 
got this message in my head somehow that like unless you're studying that thing in school and unless you're planning to make a career out of it, it's nothing that you need to keep with you in your adult life. Yeah, and that's such a shame, right? Like that's so that is such a, a an unfortunate thing that and, and to your point, I, I don't know exactly when children mm-hmm. learn that, but um, this idea that we study art for the sole purpose of becoming professional artists is is such a crock because you know, we study art and creativity to be able to think and understand and engage in our world in in more creative ways. I mean, heck, we're teaching people in business schools how to be creative, and what if we just let people have the arts in school and being creative as, would we really be needing to teach people right. how to be thinking out of the box? I, I don't know, I would venture to say probably not. Right, and I, I do worry a little bit about like teaching people to think outside of the box, because the more structures we put around it, like the it's harder it, yeah, it becomes a box, <laughs> it's like, it's a harder box. to be creative. And I've definitely felt that for myself in the past few years as a writer, um, in order to, be in touch with that kind of creative spark, I have really had to isolate myself from some of the structures that I exist within every day. So it feels like a very self-protective mechanism to put in place. Like if I want to be creative, then I need to remember that I've got to like step outside this environment where creativity feels less welcome because it's a value for me. It's a value of mine. And if I want to maintain it, then I'm going to have to build the space for it and, and protect that space. So it uh, you're you're staring down uh, an enormous amount of um, press and uh, opportunity uh, for your writing right now, mm-hmm. isn't that right? Well, tell us, tell our audience a little bit what's uh, what's going on for you. Sure. So I have my first book, memoir, uh, "Love You Hard," which is going to be released next Tuesday, March twelfth. Um, and this is a journey I never saw myself <laughs> embarking on. I sat down to start a blog about six years ago and it was two weeks after my husband had been assaulted in Washington DC and he was in the hospital and he was in a coma and I could not figure out how to send an email that would accurately and precisely convey exactly what the situation was, um, exactly how badly he was hurt and exactly how uh, traumatic and terrible it felt to be living in that moment. So I was given a piece of advice from my sister who said, well, instead of sending an email, why don't you put it in a blog? And if people want to read it, they can. And if they don't have interest, then they don't have to. Um, And this blog just took a life of its own. It became a completely therapeutic outlet for me. Um, So within like the first few hours, there were thousands of hits. And I was thinking like, who are these people that care? I mean, this is amazing, but who are these people? and they're making comments about my writing. Like, this is interesting to me because what I'm just writing about is something that's happening in the moment. And what they're commenting on is my ability to tell this story, which is not a skill that I had identified in myself. I did not realize that was something that I could do. Um, and so that blog, you know, over time became this book. That's dope. That's dope. That's pretty dope. <laughs> Thank you, Ty. Nah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it seems like uh, it must have been a bit of a surprise, the, right? The, the, the process the of writing. Yeah, the response was definitely a surprise, and so it was a surprise on lots of levels. So the one surprise was like, oh, maybe I can write, and maybe that is a way I could see myself is as somebody who can write. And then the other surprise was, people are really connecting 
with the emotional content of what I'm writing. Why is that? Um, because we've all been through hard things. So what am I putting down that is in any way special or meaningful to somebody else? So I, I did a lot of thinking about that. And you know, over the past few years, I've had people reach out to me to tell me just incredibly intimate things about their struggles and, and the situations that they're in in their lives. And I think what they're connecting to is just a vulnerability that we don't see everywhere, every day, and that we're really hungry for because we we want to be seen as struggling normal people. Yeah. It's really scary to acknowledge when things are hard because we're worried that people won't be able to see us as strong at the same time. Right. So now, holding wh- both you, those things is is hard for people to do. In why, why do you think people need to feel uh strong? Like what what is this uh this identity or this attraction to this need for to appear strong all the time. We had this conversation with yeah. another woman the other day about crying, about like the yeah. value of crying and how like, hell man, we should all cry when we want to cry. You know, mm-hmm. um, where do you think that, that comes from? I think we value ability. Um, as a society, we, we really value capability. And if you, you know, acknowledge your weaknesses or your areas um, that you feel are not your more developed areas, it is a revealing thing to show people. Um, so it is self-protective to only show people the best of yourself, right? So this is what I'm good at. Know this about me. And, you know, it's so interesting as a teacher because I'm seeing this play out with kids who don't want to try new things because they know they're not going to be good at it the first time, right? And so it's like, where are we getting this idea? Like you asked, like, where is this idea coming from that we have to be masters of everything in our universe? We do not. What a terrible burden to put on ourselves. Um, And what freedom it is to just acknowledge when things are hard and to accept that one day things can be hard and the next day they can be great. And so it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah, and maybe you can just do something because it's fun whether you're good at it or not. Right. So where's the joy? Where's the joy in the experience? Yeah, and that's definitely like, that's that's the mental kind of question that I've been carrying with me, I think for the past year especially. Being in the classroom, I've just been wondering, like, where is the joy in our learning? Is there joy? Like, and if if it's missing, how are we going to restore it? Because it it should be a value. I mean, it's a value to me as a teacher. It's a value to me as a human being. And I want to make sure that kids are getting those opportunities to just explore in a Mm. way that feels joyful. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, on the social media aspect, I feel like social media plays a huge role and uh, the way that people interact and react to things because, you know, like like as you said, social media, sometimes people only highlight those great moments and, you know, people are self-conscious of themselves and, like, uh, I'm not where that person is and, like, like I said, it takes a toll. Yeah, it's so interesting. Social media for me has been so two-faced. <laughs> like yeah. it's been this incredible way of connecting with people. So when I, you know, on the morning that my husband was assaulted, I got on Facebook and I was not trying to be that person who was going to make a big deal out of something because I didn't know what was happening at that time. I just knew that my husband was missing um, and that he was in the hospital when I eventually found out where he was. So I had asked people for prayers on Facebook, but I was pretty vague about why because I didn't have the information myself. What I received in return were hundreds of messages from people all over the planet and just, you know, 
immediate, immediate kinship. Like, I'm here for you, whatever you need. And then that did not die off in any way. I mean, that continues to be true. I feel like there's this incredible network of people who know our story and who have prayed for us. And now I get to pray for them in return when they are working through their own struggles. And then the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, we feel this need to curate it all, right? So we've got to make sure that we're only posting the photo that that looks a certain way, like that we're still kind of keeping ourselves hidden, even in this world that's pretty exposing. Well, you know, and the, the other thing that I think is so interesting about that is that um, there are some things that really bind us together, mm-hmm. right? Like, and 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 some things that we want to be bonding things, but but may may not actually live up to their their hype about being bonding things, but. But there are some situations when, when if folks go through something together or they feel like they've gone through something together or they feel like they understand what you're going through uh, because they may have had a, a traumatic experience mm-hmm. not on, uh, dissimilar to, to your own, um, it really is, is such a bonding thing to think that somebody understands you, right? right? Like it's this thing about of this need to not only matter, but this need to, to feel like people understand you. Yeah. You know. So, you know, the day that my husband was, assaulted it took hours to figure out you know what was going on and by that time he had had multiple uh, well he had had a brain surgery that removed part of his skull and he was in a coma and I remember hearing the term traumatic brain injury for the first time that day I'd probably heard it many times in my life it just never actually stuck with me so when I heard it that day I thought oh my gosh and this is so ridiculous thinking about you know in retrospect but we're the first people this has ever happened to and it just felt like the world was just like narrowed in. It was just us. We were just going through the thing, this incredibly rare injury. And then, of course, as I got out of that bubble and did my research and realized, oh, my gosh, this has been a lot of people's experiences. You know, social media was one way of connecting with other people who had been through this. And in the caregiving community, especially, um, it can be very difficult for people to connect in real life because the demands on them require them to be home with somebody that they're caring for. So for a lot of people, Facebook and you know other social media outlets, like those are the only ways that they do get to have that interaction of the, that solidarity piece that you were talking about of like, I'm in this, you're in this, we're all in this. Mm-hmm. What uh, what led you from the blog uh, to the book? Like, why why take that uh, that journey that you were on um, in that blog format and turn it into a book? I think you know, even in the early days when <clears throat> my husband was in the hospital for three months, and even in that time, I started to realize that like there was going to be some very deep ancient wisdom passed on to me during this process. And um, I didn't know what that would be, except that I had an opportunity to learn some things that I might not have learned otherwise if life had just kept going down that path I expected it to. So the blog was a helpful way of kind of reporting day to day the experience, but the book was a mining of wisdom. It was figuring out like from this incredibly difficult journey that we've been on, what are the universal like lessons? What are the universal messages that we have been able to receive because of it? Because those have nothing to do with brain injury. They really don't have anything to do with caregiving either. They are the messages of the human struggle, right? They are the reminders of like how we need to live this life with the time that we have. And that felt important to share. So how long did it take you to complete the book? 
It took about five years. Um, I started writing the first 25 pages of this book about a year after my husband's injury and then was writing on and off. Um, Realized pretty early on that you can't write a memoir about a story that's not complete or a chapter of your life that's not complete. And so there was a lot of living that needed to happen in that time. Uh, So this, I originally thought this book was going to just kind of chronicle the first year of our experience with brain injury, it turned into something so different. Um, It is very much about recovery, but in that space, it is also about the emotional recovery from trauma um, and how people who loved each other desperately and thought they would be together forever can be very humbled by what life has to offer um, and how you restart when you've been kicked back to the starting line how did you uh how did your husband react to the you know the the nice warm comments um you know how did he react to that uh once he recovered and all that good stuff um i was kind of shoving all the nice comments at him whenever i could thinking that they would just kind of like seep into his understanding but he had such little awareness of what was happening for at least six months that he just had no idea how big everything had become kind of in his absence, right? It was all around him, and yet he was totally unaware of it. So it was interesting. About a year after his injury, when he was starting to, you know, communicate a little bit better and and his awareness was starting to build, then he was very curious about, like, let me read these notes that people sent on. Like, was this really in the newspaper, Abby? (laughs) Like, you know, things that at that point were old news for me, like they weren't new news for him. So he was extremely grateful, but then I think he still has moments of being like, why do people care so much? Or why why were they so kind? And I'm not sure that he still understands like the impact of his life on all the people in his community. I'm not sure that he is there yet, but he's also a very modest person, so Mm. yeah. So uh, how, how did uh, how did this book that you're writing become, um, you know, get to a place where, you know, you're going to be on the Today Show on Monday and yeah. you're you, you know, you've got uh, people coming over to your house to, to film you and, and do all of this. Like, wh- how did that piece of it happen? And how are you feeling about that? Um, so it happened because I started saying yes to everything in life. I mean, that is the that's the short response. Right. So opportunities. Um, that I never imagined have landed in my lap. And I think in part it's because I've been open to them. Um, So I was very, very lucky to have a literary agent uh, who I connected with a year after TC's assault who offered to represent me. And she's the one who sold the book and has advocated on my behalf for many years now. So I've been very lucky to have her. Um, I think it's just, it's the connection. It's like, it's my desire to continue connecting with everybody I can reach. Um, And it's just incredible to me that like what started out as, you know, a smaller pool of people being concerned about TC and wanting to offer help has just kind of expanded into this huge community of people who are caregivers and people who have survived brain injury and people who have just survived life and (laughs) would love to, you know, make sure that they are having real conversations with other people who have also survived life or some you know, difficult chapter of it. Are you excited for to today's show? Oh, I, yeah, I didn't answer that part, did I? Yeah. I am excited. I'm very excited. You know, 
it is a totally foreign world for me. I spend my days in a DCPS elementary school, and that brings me a lot of joy and fills me with an incredible sense of purpose. So this is not filling any gap in, you know, a desire to do meaningful work. I do meaningful work every day, and I'm so grateful for it. This is like in addition to it. So it's incredibly exciting. It's completely exhausting. Um, saying yes to everything, you know, you can do that for so long. And then <laughs> and then you realize, oh, I've got to start saying yes to myself and, and to a nap and, <laughs> and to self-care. So that's kind of where I am now. So I'm excited. I am also ready to kind of return to some normalcy, um, whatever that means and however that looks. So this has been a long process. And TC has been incredibly supportive. So he's had to do a lot of child rearing in my absence as I've been writing this book. And I think he's probably also ready for us to like settle down and have some quiet time all together just as a family. So I, I think um, uh, we should end the conversation on encouraging everybody to say yes to a nap. Yes. Yeah. Always to a nap. Always to a nap. <laughs> when in doubt, if you are at all confused about whether the answer to that question is yes or no, it's always a nap. Yeah. It's always yes to the nap. Yeah. I agree. I got one more question. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Ty. Are you going to allow the students to watch you on TV? Oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Are they going to put oh, like, yeah. the TV so on? So here's the parameters around that. They can absolutely watch it on TV if they're other if their teachers who are with them on Monday want them to watch it. They they certainly may. They may not read the book until mm. I, I'd like to say 21. I don't get to make the rules though, but there are some curse words in there, so we're just going to hold off. Wow, you got to wait till you're they're 21. I know for it's curse killing words? them. Well, it's, well, I'm very I'm trying to protect them. They're going to find it much sooner than that. But I I'm just feeling they may hear those words before <laughs> yeah. 21. Oh, it's, it's so frustrating for them to have a teacher who's written a book they can't read. Uh, so yeah. hopefully the next book will be for them. We'll see. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time uh, to come down and, and seeing us. And, yeah. and we look forward to, you know, whatever's next. Yeah. Thank you so much. Of course. On behalf of Tool to Create, this is Ty Westbrook signing out with people that you don't know that you should know. Abby, thanks again for coming in. And best of luck to you along the way. Thanks so much. Hey, you already know what it is. It's your boy Ty Westbrook, host of People That You Don't Know That You Should Know. And I gotta give a special shout out to DC artist Rasta Taj. My man been killing the game for a minute now, I'm telling you. Go hit my man on Instagram at R-A-S-T-A-T-A-H-J. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss it. <laughs> I'm telling you, my man gonna put you on that smooth vibe. We can go and get the dough, we can do it together. We could be forever. It's like some rainy weather. We running like the meter. No, they ain't competing, but no, they wanna be us. See, I'm looking like, whoa, hey, no, they digging our flow. We wanna thank you all for tuning in to this episode of People That You Don't Know That You Should Know. If you like our show and wanna learn more, Check out tool2creates.com. And oh yeah, please subscribe on the Apple Podcast. You guys be sure to tune in again next week for another episode of People That You Don't Know That You Should Know. I'm Tyler Westbrook, signing out.